welcome to Warpod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme. In our monthly Westminster Roundup podcast, we give you a quick roundup analysis of the two top stories from Westminster, chosen by Liam, that's him, and Megan, that's her. So Liam, what's your top story? So, oh my god, uh, the last month has been crazy, uh, and not just because of everything going on with the B word mm-hmm. and the EU elections. But we had a really big news story with Mr. Gavin Williamson, which seems slightly ironic because our last podcast was sort of celebrating yeah, that absolutely. he'd launched the Centre for, for Excellence on Human Security, that this, this was really hopeful and promising. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, it turns out that the Prime Minister lost confidence in him uh, because there was claims and allegations that he had leaked um, some discussions that had been taking place at the National Security Council, so the top level uh, council that takes place within government, so it's the Prime Minister, her leading ministers, Gavin Williamson being one of them when he was Defence Secretary, um, and this was around the, the, the Huawei uh, scandal with regards to them taking part in developing the, five, the UK's 5G network, which has been lots of Concerned about that? Yeah, um, Things going on with the Five Eyes allies in terms of Australia, I believe, and the United States have obviously uh, said that they don't want Huawei uh, involved. And now I've actually learned how to pronounce Huawei as oh, well good. because of, um, I thought it was Huawei. I've always been wondering, so that's good to know. It's not it's Huawei, it's Huawei apparently. Okay, it sounds good. much better. Um, so yeah, I think there's that, there is there are clearly concerns that Gavin Williamson expressed publicly, you know, to be fair, uh, before this, this leak came out. But it has sort of been um, trailed back to him, yeah. rightly or wrongly, because he's still, as far as I'm aware, still uh, refusing to accept that it that it was him. Has rejected quite strongly. Used terms. I mean, you know, uh, he's said that he's sworn on his children's lives. Yeah. That it, it, it wasn't. All very him. dramatic. So yeah, yeah, very dramatic. But we now have uh, the first ever um, female British defence secretary. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who has uh, risen among the Tory ranks over the last sort of what eight years, nine years. Um, she's a former naval reserve, or still naval reserve, reservist. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see whether that will be of any consequence. She's clearly running now for the Tory leadership as well. Yeah, another big uh, announcement, obviously another resignation. Again, very dramatic. So, yeah, so it'd be, it'd be really interesting, but I, I mean, I don't know about you, Megan, but I, I thought that the, the implications that someone would leak from the NSC was quite serious because, you know, from, from stuff that we've discussed in the past and recommendations that we've made is that it's, it's sometimes a bit of a black box, the yeah, NSC, sometimes rightly so, um, but that more of sort of the strategies at the top level of government in terms of how they feed into different regions, different themes across government as we're trying to deliver this fusion doctrine um, that is the big buzzword at the moment, a whole of government approach now called the fusion doctrine. Um, how we do that, and if, if you, we're sort of saying that we needed to release a bit more information, but now it feels like, well, do they need to make it tighter in terms of the, the, the security around yeah. the NSC and whether there'll be the wrong response to that in terms of, well, we don't want to release any further yeah. information. I suppose that's. I the, guess it's two different things. I guess we're asking more for the systematic opening up yes. of the NSC, and this is very much a leak. Uh, which is the first yeah. time in history that's happened. So yeah. it is very unusual and it's something that we think um, is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's good to just quickly say that 
clearly leaks happen from the cabinet all the time, yeah. but this is something quite different that the NSC is talking about national security at the top yeah. level. It's meant to be the safe space that David Cameron set up back in 2010, and I think it's a real risk if that is undermined in any way. Yeah, so, absolutely. Anyway, less about Gavin Williamson uh-huh. and, and uh, uh, that area of, 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 of politics and defence politics at the moment. What is your big story? So my big story is actually not from Westminster itself, but last week, from May 20th to 24th, was Protection of Civilians Week. And this is a topic we've been working on for a while now. Um, obviously, there are quite a lot of moral arguments as to why you should have good protection of civilians in conflict. Mm-hmm. But we've been looking more at the strategic and possible legal consequences of having inadequate um, POC policies in remote warfare. Um, we've been looking very much at two aspects of this, mm-hmm. I think, in the last, in the few, last few months. So first of all, we've been looking at how uh, Western forces have been increasingly supporting local forces yeah. in war through air support, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and they often do this in urban environments because that's how war has changed and it often happens in urban environments. Um, and it has implications in the way that we monitor uh, protecting civilians on the ground, and especially civilian casualties. Mm-hmm. And something we've been looking at how that has implications in regards yeah. to the strategy and the legitimacy that you have on the mm-hmm. ground. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think, I think it's really interesting because there seems to be talked about last month the Centre of Excellence for, for Human Security, the yeah. government or MAD um, published the joint um, services publication 1325 back in January I think it was, um, which kind of was talking about human security which included lots of different things and there's been some criticism of that document because it hasn't put protection civilians front and centre but I know from the conversations that we've had mm-hmm. uh, with military folk that you know sometimes it's quite difficult to understand exactly what protection of civilians means because it has as you sort of suggested there has very different meanings to to different people maybe that's a a good thing um, because if you tighten the definition far too much then you're going to miss other areas that need to be addressed clearly Um, but yeah I think there's opportunity to try and get an understanding that as we always are trying to emphasize that remote warfare is a different form of warfare that requires a different sort of approach and there are different challenges in terms of how you Absolutely. actually deliver the protection of civilians. Um, NATO um, ha- has launched its policy on protection of civilians, which looks at this from, from sort of like coalition um, uh, missions. But clearly that's a slightly different, uh, it's a different operation because it suggests, suggests that you're going to have more troops on the ground like exactly. it is in Afghanistan, where you've got bigger capacity, more capacity to be able to actually protect civilians in a way, and put in place different initiatives to do so. So it's, we're trying to definitely explore how the MOD can think of different ways, innovative ways to actually ensure that we can protect civilians while working with a weaker partner um, and while having a lighter footprint. Exactly. So like, part of the problem, like you mentioned, is that in places like Iraq and Syria, we haven't had people on the ground at all, mm-hmm. um, or we have it in a very small capacity. In the counter-ISIS fight, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so that because we only have air support, that's how we monitor our civilian mm-hmm. activities as well. And that's particularly difficult when groups like ISIS are using human shields yeah, yeah. Um, as part of their strategy. Yeah. And it means that when you have people who are burying rubble, for example, yeah. you can't monitor them yeah. very easily. And I think it's right to mention that air power is clearly a problem. But I know in the, the counter-ISIS fight, artillery, the use of artillery as mm-hmm. well, um, has also been a, a, a real problem. And people from, from the RF and other air services will often say that, that it's not just that the air power is yeah, causing absolutely. these problems, um, it's, it's artillery as well, and how you employ that particular capability in a safe way to ensure that not only you're protecting civilian lives, it's something that we talk about, right, in terms of reducing harm, but also um, reducing the impact on civilian infrastructure that mm-hmm. will affect civilian populations absolutely. for many years to come. 
Definitely. Um, and I guess it's important to say as well, this comes in the context of the government um, insisting that they only have evidence for one, one civilian casualty. Yes. So we're trying to challenge this claim that there's only been one um, civilian casualty, yeah. they only have proof of that. Mm -hmm. um, and we're trying to say that they need better, better methods of, of catching yeah. up to the current way of, of conducting mm -hmm. warfare. Absolutely. Um, and I guess and the second aspect to that is that we also sometimes see Western uh, forces like the UK supporting forces on the ground who may not share the same objectives with MQC mm -hmm. as we do. Yeah. Um, or well, I just don't understand it, right? They don't, yeah, I understand it, or are unable to actually... We, 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 we have conversations with, with military personnel saying, well, they're, they're, because of this, this um, pressure to deliver on, you know, quite rightly so, but women, yeah. um, children, all these different things that need to be addressed, when you're partnering with someone like the Peshmerga, for example, your, you know, should your focus be on um, protecting women, children and girls or should it just be the idea of protection of civilians? And it's very difficult, difficult I think, from, for the military to sort of be able to focus down and, and prioritise different elements yeah. to also continue to be militarily effective, right? Absolutely. So I think definitely. it's a really interesting and challenging area that needs to definitely be explored further. In the Absolutely. Future, so. And we should say that we have a briefing coming out on this, so if you're interested in knowing more, oh, yeah. you can read more about that in the next two weeks. We've written that. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming out. Great. So Liam, do you have another story? I do. I have a story. Um, and this seems to have sort of fallen under people's radar, um, but it came out um, in the middle of the month, which was basically about the MOD um, revising its torture guidance. Um, that might potentially lower um, the UK's standards on ensuring that it's not taking, it's not torturing um, to try and receive intelligence, or that the partners it's um, working with um, or obtaining information from that they haven't also um, used torture. So um, just a very quick cut in there. I don't think it's so much the UK themselves. It's more focused on absolutely um, yes. using intelligence like gathered by That's partners good, yes. who themselves yeah. use use torture exactly. methods. Um, and you know. I suppose this is very controversial for, for two reasons, I suppose, perhaps more, but the main ones I can think of is that back in 2011, uh, the consolidated guidance came out, which was very strong that the UK should not be using torture as a means to gather intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, this came out of scandals in Afghanistan, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Um, so that was that was kind of the commitment, and also the UK has international commitments and international law as well not to yeah. uh, to do this. And I think our colleagues at Reprieve and others have written to the government and made that claim quite clearly that this this sort of could undermine um, the UK's approach. Now, what the the, the standards actually say, because I think it's helpful just to clarify that, is that UK ministers are able to share information that may be obtained from third parties, <clears throat> even if there is a serious risk of torture. But if ministers agree that the potential benefits justify accepting the risk and the legal consequences that may follow. So I think what is really interesting about this, again, it's, it's like with the, um, the accountability mechanisms that are in place for uh, assessing the UK's overseas security and justice assistance, the assessment, the OSTRA assessment that goes on there is if a case through OSDIA is high risk, it will go to a minister for approval, and that becomes a very political decision. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and where the accountability lies when it goes to the minister is very unclear. We, we can't get access to, for example, Austria assessments. And I think it's similar in, in this case, um, because, oh, all right, the minister will, is, you know, is saying, the MOD is saying that the, the minister will, will take that risk, will take that risk on themselves, accepting the risk and the legal consequences that may follow if um, it turns out that 
intelligence has been shared with, with a partner that has committed torture, then where is the accountability going to be, be taking place? Is that, is that going to happen within the ISC? The ISC has obviously had a role in this in the past. Um, where, where can that actually be done? Because we know that this is very sort of secretive, classified yeah. um, around intelligence. So how can we get the accountability? So I think that's, that is, there are those two concerns there in terms of, okay, is the UK um, breaching its international obligations and commitments and its own national law as well? But also, is there sufficient accountability if now um, this is going to be left to um, a minister to make a political decision? So I mm -hmm. think that's, that, that is really quite concerning. And, and we know from, there's been a lot of attention to this among many Western countries looking over the last couple of years. I know that President Trump made some ridiculous comments about using torture and the late John McCain came out, who was clearly, obviously, um, had been subjected to torture when he was uh, in Vietnam, when he became a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And he said, look, it just doesn't work because yeah. you will grind someone down so far using these inhumane methods and you will often get information that isn't right, uh, it's incorrect and will lead you to the wrong answer. To, to apply the wrong uh, mechanisms to respond to it. So I think it is a real risk that we are following down this line of thinking that torture is the answer to securing our national interests. Definitely. I think it's interesting as well that um, it was in the context of Trump's comments, actually. It was in November yeah. last year when he made those comments yeah. that the MOD announced they were going to look over the standards again. Um, and at the time, you had groups like Amnesty and Reprieve who came out and saying that they were very worried about mm -hmm. what was going to happen. Um, and now we see that there has been absolutely no accountability, there's been no process of, dra of yeah. dragging them into this process to try and understand from their perspective how you could do this better. Uh, it's been very close off, and mm -hmm. now we just have this new document that's a little bit more open to using um, intelligence gathered by partners who use torture. So I think that's very concerning. Mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just to say, uh, the MOD has said that it, all its policy and activities do comply with the Cabinet Office's consolidated guidance. That guidance that I was talking about that was published in in 2011 by Prime Minister David Cameron. But again, it goes back to where is the accountability? How can exactly. we hold the government to account? Um, and I think if we look at over the last sort of 10, 15, nearly 20 years, yeah. um, there's clearly been cracks where this has sort of got through and we haven't been, it's taken a long time to be able Absolutely. to have that accountability and oversight. So I think this is one definitely to watch. Um, and hopefully I'm sure our colleagues at Reprieve and others um, Amnesty International, for example, will be looking at this closely. Absolutely. Great. Well, so, that's, that's it for this month. That's it. Great. Thank you for listening. Bye.